Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swing, so without further ado, here he is. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows we are how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all the works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This psalm is considered one of the the mountaintop psalms in the the whole Psalter. Um, If you read through the psalms, a lot of them, some of them are dark, some of them are heavy, some of them are happy, some of them are, are bright. This is one of the ones that is really, they consider it a mountaintop psalm because it is just really expressive and really grateful and really praising the Lord and calling out to him. It's believed that this was written by David, and it's thought that he wrote it later in life when he was able to look back over his entire life and his entire history and kind of uh, take a look inside and take a look at how God had worked throughout his life. As we approach the psalm, I, I really was struggling with how to preach from the psalm. I don't know, I've never preached from a psalm before until today. And it's a different kind of writing. It's very different than an epistle or, or a gospel where you see Jesus' words. The psalms are, are like a love letter of someone who is writing a letter to God or to their, to their own soul. And we get the privilege of peering over their shoulder and looking at what they're writing. And as someone who has attempted to write songs in the past and attempted to write some worship stuff, I realize that psalms don't come out of a vacuum. Songs we write or psalms that are written to the Lord, they come out of our experience. They come out of who we are and what we're experiencing. And so we don't fully understand this as far as the author intended it because we we can't fully know what was going on in his life. And yet, as we peer over his shoulder and read the words, we can see how he expresses his love and his devotion to God. So as I was reading through this and studying this, some of the thoughts that were going through my mind are, I wonder what's going on in his life. I wonder what's, 
what's happening that would cause him to, to, to write these words. I also was thinking, what kind of music would go under this? You know, what, how would that sound? I mean, I'm sure whatever he, Hebraic music that they, they put to it would sound really foreign and strange to us. But imagine if we actually grew up in that culture and lived there and understood the music. We would be like, oh yeah, that music rocks, you know. And you, I would imagine, based on the psalm, that it would probably start kind of quiet and, and kind of introspective. And as the music goes on, it would build to a huge climax. But we'll get into that as we talk. It's a call to worship. The first thing I noticed as I read through this is this is a personal call to worship at the very beginning. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. One thing in the Psalms, you always have to pay attention whenever things come in threes. It means it's very important. Three times, the very beginning, the very entrance of the Psalm, David was calling out to his own self, to his own heart, praise the Lord. The first thing I want to pull out is who his praise is directed towards. You see, all of us worship something. All of us praise and something. There is something in our life that gets our adoration, that gets our praise. Our hearts are designed to reach out and praise and worship something. The question is, what is it? What do, what, do we, what do we put our time, our talent, our energy, our resources into? These are the things that we deem most important. These are the things that our soul longs for and cries out for. I was wondering, imagine, this doesn't exist, but I like to think of like things that might exist in the future. I imagine that very soon we'll have contact lenses that have built-in video cameras. You know, like right now you have to pull out your phone and it's kind of clunky and you have to push all the buttons and you get the camera up and then you hold it up and you, you show, you, and then you can videotape whatever you're doing. That's so cumbersome. That's such, a, that's such a pain to have to pull your phone out and do all that work. Imagine if you have this contact lens and you're just like, hey, click on. I'm now recording. Click off. It's not. You know, imagine that, how easy that'd be. And I was thinking, what would it be like if, if say, we had some contact lenses like that and somebody else got to observe our life through our eyes for an entire week. I don't know how the sound would get hooked in, but they'd be sound too. So throughout an entire week, they get to see and hear everything that we did, everything that we, we said, the way we interacted with our families, the, what, kind of, what we were doing at work, how we spent our money, how we used our power, the power that we had in our jobs and our in our home, uh, among people that we were engaging with, what kind of entertainment we were into, we watched, what kind of television shows we watched, what we were surfing on the web, how we engaged in the church, church activities. At the end of that week, you may have a good picture of what we really worshipped, right? If somebody would have that opportunity to kind of see life through our eyes for a week, they'd get a glimpse of the things that are most important to us. I mean, that technology isn't here yet. I'm excited when it comes. I want some contacts like that. But imagine, what would you, how would you feel if somebody saw and heard what you see and hear in a week? And how would that reflect your heart? The second thing that the psalmist calls himself to is that his whole self be engaged in worship. I don't know about you, but I am easily distracted. I'm very easily distracted when I'm in worship. 
um, we'll be standing and singing the song, and I'll be like, man, I'm hungry. Man, I wonder, well, what are we doing this afternoon? You know, oh, we could watch this. You know, I'm thinking of all these other things. I'm totally distracted. I can stand. I can sing. I can sing the words that are up on the screen. I can clap. I can look like I'm worshiping, and my heart can be totally disengaged. And that is not true worship. The psalmist realized that in his own heart and said, you know what? I I, before I do anything, I have to call my heart to worship. I have to make sure that my heart is fully engaged and that in everything I do, that I am worshiping God. You know, this isn't just, a, uh, this isn't just something that is a harvest issue. Um, last week, Lori and I had the privilege of going to Ohio and visiting our, our church where we used to work before we lived in Spain. And uh, it's a very traditional church. Totally different style of music, uh, organ music and hymn books and, you know, very different style. The thing is, the worship uh, that your heart produces is easily distractible, no matter, no matter what kind of tradition you come from, no matter what kind of music you use, it's not the music that, that creates the worship. It is our hearts and it is our, the way that we are facing and the way that we are um, dedicating ourselves to God. So we must be cautious that we don't allow ourselves to come to worship as just a mental exercise, as just a rhythm of life, as just a pattern of religion or tradition without power and without connecting with the one who has called us. You know, uh, one of the things that Harvest does, um, and I know as leaders to prepare our hearts on Sunday mornings, is before we step outside, out, up front at all, all the leaders and anyone who's hanging around is called to come out back in the, in the hallway and spend some time in, in prayer. This is because we recognize, even as leadership, even as worship team, even as the AV team and people who are setting up, we recognize that we are all easily distracted by the, by the act of worship to the point that it can distract us from actually why we're here. And we, we want to guard our own hearts against that. And because of that, we, as a, as a team, every Sunday morning, gather together to refocus ourselves as a, as a church. Why are we here? It is not just to go through a religious exercise, but it's because there is one who is great and worthy to be worshipped in this place. We also are easily distracted in our own lives. You know, worship doesn't end on Sunday morning. I think um, it's easy for us, I, I, myself included, it's easy to come, put in our hour and a half Sunday morning and be like, check, oh, I've done my worship this week, that's done. That's, that's really the wrong way for us to look at worship. Worship is not something that ends in this time on Sunday morning. This is the beginning of worship. This is the first day of the week. This is the thing that we set our hearts on God and we live an entire week living our life as worship. If, if we see this as the only time in our lives that we worship God, then there's something off and there's something wrong. You know, I've been really uh, been, uh, during the Omega course, one of the things that Jason Pankow has been saying, for those of us who've been there regularly, he's, he's been regularly cautioning us not to be distracted by religion and miss out on knowing God. And I don't think this is anything that is a harvest-specific thing. I think all of us who follow Christ, this is a, this is a tendency of our souls to get stuck into the habits and the traditions and miss out on the heart of God. And we must caution ourselves. So it's a personal call of worship to the Lord of our whole selves and it's total worship. 
C.S. Lewis was an author, um, a great Christian author, and he had, I love his works. If you've never read a C.S. Lewis book, you have to check out Mere Christianity and read it this week. You can't wait any longer. Um, but there's a quote from this book that I want to share with you. It deals with total worship. C.S. Lewis said, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. So this psalm, before he even gets into the real psalm, the first first thing he does is he focuses on his own heart. He recognizes his own distracted nature. And he says, hey, soul, hey, whole self, I need to worship God. But he doesn't stop there. Now that he's called himself to worship I bet there is this nagging feeling in him, and he's like, well, why? Why do I need to do this? Okay, I worship God, worship God. Well, well, why should I do this? He's like, this is why. I need to remember some things. You know, I have seen God at work. And the psalmist starts by saying, I've seen God at work in my own life. You know, if you want to share your faith with someone else, one of the best places to start is how you've seen God at work in your own life. If you haven't seen God at work in your own life, that is where you need to start. You can't give away or share something that you don't have. If you haven't seen something at work in your life, that is where you need to focus. The psalmist looks in his life, and he he pulls out two different things that are really interesting. And they're in threes. I'm going to read this out loud. He says to himself, I need to remember this, that God forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems, you, redeems your life from the pit. He's like, and there's also these other things. He crowns you, you with the love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. So remember, Psalms, whenever there's three things, that means it's really important. So The first three things talk about being in a place of brokenness, of hurt, of of, uh, slavery, and being brought out of that. It's almost as if he's describing a God who is an EMT or a doctor rescuing him. He looks back in his life and says, everything was messed up. You forgave me, you healed me, you redeemed me. And he talks about this God who pulls him up. If you've never experienced that God, that is where, that is where you, we all must start. We, we don't start okay. We don't start whole and healthy. We need somebody to heal us where we're broken and to redeem us from the sin. But then it's cool because there's this transition that happens. So there's these three things that talk about this God that's kind of pulling you up and bringing you out of this pit, bringing you out of the darkness. And then there's this other God, the same guy, but he does this other thing. The first thing he has to do is bring you up. But then once you're healthy and once you're whole, 
there's this guy, this God who's like a personal coach and trainer. He's like, now you're healthy. Now we can work with you. So he crowns you. He gives you a new identity. I don't know if you've ever played a sport. I think most everyone here has played a sport. I've seen most of you out on the field at some point. One of the first things that happens when you play a sport is you identify the teams. You say, it's shirts and skins. It's dark shirts and light shirts. It's, you know, you separate everybody and you say, okay, these guys are one team and these guys are the other team. You have to have some way to, to identify who you are. And once you have that identity, it, it helps you focus and know how to play the game. If you don't have an identity, you end up uh, playing for the wrong team a lot of times. Also, if you don't have matching shirts, it also can be challenging. He, he gives you a new identity. He satisfies you and gives you what you need. And he renews your strength. He prepares you and builds you up to send you out and give you the energy and the strength to do his work. So you see these two sides of God that, that the psalmist has recognized in his, own, in his own life. The God who pulls you up and rescues you, and then the God that heals you and inspires you and pushes you on to great things. It's bringing you up and sending you out. The question is, how have we seen God at work in our own lives? Are we able to share our story? Are we able to show how we've seen God at work? And then the second thing that the psalmist does, he's like, okay, I've taken a few moments. I've shared how I've seen God at work in my life, in my personal story, but I can't stop there. If I just stop there, well, that's nice, that's great for you. Your God works wonderful things in your life, but what about everyone else? And so the psalmist realizes that, and he doesn't stop. He says, you know what? Let's spend some time looking at how God is at work in the lives of his people. So this entire chapter is 22 verses long, and 13 verses are devoted to this next section, which describe God's graciousness to his own people. And this, this is a very important part of the whole psalm because he spends a lot of time on it. And one of the things I noticed as I was reading through this is the psalmist recognizes his own sin. And if we don't fully recognize how far and how deep our sin is and how far we've fallen from the glory of God, we won't understand how great his grace is. I was... Uh, a few years ago, I, was, I met for, with, a, with a guy for a coffee, and we were sitting there talking, and he was asking me all these questions about Christianity and faith and different things. And at some point, we were talking about sins, and um, I, I mentioned something along the lines of how, you know, you know lying deserves, deserves death, just as murder would deserve death. Like, sin is sin, and in the eyes of God, it, it puts us out. It makes us not worthy of, of His righteousness and I remember this guy looked at me, and he got really angry. And he was like, well, that doesn't seem fair. You mean lying is just as, murder is definitely way worse than lying. And, you know, he got really animated. And I was like, whoa, 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 yeah, you're right, you're right. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but you're, you're judging sin based on your own measure. You're looking at your own life and saying, in my life, I have, a, I have decided that anything beyond this is really bad, but anything above this is, is okay. I said, you're using your own standards to measure what is sin, but God's standard is perfection, and we all fall short of that. And, and as we, we discussed that and we begin to describe it, it was like a light clicked on it, and I saw it in his eyes where he was like, oh, this makes more sense. 
It's not that, it's not that, that murder isn't bad, because it is, uh, but it's that everything we do that is selfish and sinful leads to destruction. It leads to the destruction of others and leads to, to the destruction of our own soul. And we need someone to rescue us from our own destructive ways. St. Augustine um, was one of the early church fathers in the Christian faith. He has a book called Confessions. And the entire book is literally Confessions. He starts at the time he can first remember in his own life, and he starts thinking about kids he mistreated, like in the schoolyard and playing in the summer. And he goes through his entire life and documents everything he ever did that he considers sinful. He writes an entire book. That's his entire book of confessions is his whole life, everything he's messed up. And he just, he's brutally honest. Everything he's done and said and ways he's treated people and things he's gone to and seen and ways that he treated, treated others, he's brutally honest. There are three things that, that, that stuck out in his, um, and when I was reading through his book. One is he talks about what is considered the sins of commissions. The sins of things that he did, things he did that were not right, that he should not have done. You know, those, that's where most of us stop. We said, I did this bad, I did this bad, I did this bad. And then, you know, but every, other than that, things are fine. And that's kind of where we stop most of the time in Christianity. We don't mean to. That's just, it's an easy, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong, right? We, it's like we have to do something wrong. It's an active thing that we have to do to, to be sinful. But he goes on. And he talks about sins of omission. These are a little trickier. Sins of omission are things we didn't do that we should have done. And those are a lot more convicting. Because I think about my daily life. I don't often do a lot of things that are evil on purpose. I don't often do a lot of things to other people. But there are a whole lot of things I neglect to do that are good and godly. And so he talks about these two different kinds of sins in his life. The things he's done that he shouldn't. The things that he hasn't done that he should have done. And then he pulls out this third one, which I haven't really heard it talked about in a lot of Christian circles, but it totally, totally blew me away. He asks forgiveness for the sins that he would have done had he been given the chance, but he didn't have that chance in life. And that, to me, was a really honest confession. Because I don't know about you, but if you look in your own life, and I look in mine, I realize I've been spared many opportunities to sin. I've been spared by the family I was born into, by the area I live in in the world. And I can't imagine, if I were in a different place, a different time, a different situation, how, how I might have messed up things way more than I have in this life that I've lived. Augustine recognized in his own heart his own tendencies, and he brought that all before God. And he said, God, forgive me of all these things. Until we recognize the own sin in our own life, we won't fully understand God's grace. The psalmist goes on to write, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. So as, far, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So this passage shows us an amazing glimpse of God through David's perspective. David recognized his own sinful nature. 
recognize how far he fell from the glory of God. I find great comfort when I read these words. Recently, uh, I had somebody come to the church and they were asking for uh, assistance through the Benevolence Fund. And uh, one of their greatest concerns were early in life, they, they did something, they messed up, and they, they have a prison record. And so whenever they go and they apply for a job, they have to check that, yes, I have served time in prison. And this person said to me, you know, that is, every time I go, immediately I'm put at the bottom of the list. Immediately I don't have a shot. Immediately I'm blacklisted. You know, like they know that I'm, I'm not what, what, they don't even give me a chance. I can't even, before I even have a chance to describe the situation or what happened. And, you know, I, I thought about that. Each of us, really, that is what we deserve. That is the kind of mark that we would have on our lives in light of God's glory. But it's as if God took, took the, the application of this person and whited that out and said, you know what, that is struck from your record. That no longer appears in any state records, any federal records. You are free to pursue whatever you want. That is erased forever. Imagine what that would feel like if you had been carrying around that weight and that guilt and that shame all your life. That, that is the offer of forgiveness that David recognized when he saw his God. David looks over his own story, and he shares it. He remembers how God's at work. He looks over the story of Israel. He looks at God's faithfulness within that community. God rescued that, that, that nation over and over and over from its enemies. Things that were miraculous. There was no, no earthly way that they should have survived as many of the calamities that came their way as they did. Apart from God, that wasn't possible. Sto- David shares this story with his own soul because he knows his soul needs it. And I believe that this is a call for all of us. In our lives, we need to remember the stories. It's so easy to forget even what God did last week. We go through our life, we see God at work, we see amazing things happen, and then a week later something bad happens and we forget all the good and all the amazing things God does. We need to make sure that as 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 a, as a congregation that we continue to share stories of how God works in our lives. I've heard many of your stories through conversations, through meals. Some of you have shared your stories on, through emails or even on the uh, Harvest blog. That's the whole purpose of the Ashes to Beauty blog. It's to share how God has been at work in the lives of our church. When we see God at work in the lives of others around us, we remember God is at work in our lives too. We use, we serve one another as we share our stories and show how God is at work because we remember, yes, that's amazing. I do see God there. I do see God there. I do see God there. God is at work all around us if we open our eyes and are paying attention. So as a church, we need to remember to share the stories first with our own soul and then with one another because we don't want to forget what God has done. So there's an amazing thing that happens in this psalm as he, as he goes. He starts at the beginning, and he just it, it's almost as if he needs, he's preparing his own soul for, for, for Sunday worship. And once he's prepared, he's like, man, you know, I'm looking out. I'm seeing God. God's been at work in our nation, and it is amazing how God is at work. 
And he's like, but you know what? God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with Israel. He said, God, the, the psalmist is very intentional in the languages he, that he uses. He talks about how God is working on behalf of all those who are obedient to him, all who follow his commands. This, this is a God whose grace extends to the whole world. Now, at this point in the psalm, if I was the worship leader and I was leading it, it, this in song, this would be the point in the song where I would be like, okay, all the instruments, everybody has to come in on this beat and we're just going to start crescendoing and we're going to hit every single downbeat and it's just going to be all sound. All the trumpets are going to play. Everyone is going to play because we are, going, we are no longer just calling our own soul. We are calling all of creation to worship. And that is exactly what the psalmist does. At the end, it is a call for everyone. He calls the angels, the mighty ones, the heavenly hosts, the servants who do his will, all his works everywhere, all of creation are called in a final climax of this song, in a crescendo that, that if it were music, it would be so loud you wouldn't hear your own voice. It is a call to worship of all creation. And the last line Praise the Lord, O my soul. In the midst of this, I still need to remember, my soul also needs to worship God. So as we think about this, we need to first inspect our own hearts. Do we know our hearts well enough? Do we know our hearts as well as the psalmist knows his? Do we know how we are distracted? Do we know what we give our attention and our worship to in our weeks? Once we've, once we've taken that time, it will be impossible for us to not call all of creation with us. We want to be a church who reaches out. We want to be a church who engages the community. We want to be a church that, who, whose light shines before men. Who, you can't help but know that God is at work in this community. But we must make sure that our own souls are right with God. Because if we aren't, if we aren't calling ourselves to worship how can we call anyone else? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we confess that we are easily distracted and we easily forget. Lord, we pray that individually and as a church, that we will constantly remember to call our hearts to worship to you. Lord, we pray that we won't be distracted by silly and meaningless things, but that our hearts will be set on you and on the eternal things. Father, we pray that as our hearts worship you and love you, that you will work in us and through us, and that you will shine your light through us into this community and into the whole world. We pray your blessings on us, and we ask, Lord, that... um, You would walk with us and guide us in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.